Hey, everybody, this is former World Wrestling Federation superstar Duke the Dumpster Drossy, and you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. It's time to take out the trash. The following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WZWA Network. I am your host with the most on the West Coast, California in Fury. Great to be with you all once again here. This show is on fire. This is the biggest and best wrestling podcast in the Southern Hemisphere. And here tonight, I am very thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to this man right here. He is the one and only, the incomparable Duke the Dumpster Drosy. How are you going, my friend? All right, my friend. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, sir. And it's um, it's it's just a thrill for me to have the chance to talk to you about your time in wrestling. And uh, the question that we always start the show with, sir, is uh, how did you become a wrestling fan when you were a young man? Um, I was, as a kid, I was watching wrestling. I grew up... Um, I moved to Miami, Florida, the state of Florida, when I was very young. And um, they had championship wrestling from Florida back in those days, the 70s and 80s, with Gordon Soley. That's the years, that's the decades I was a kid. And uh, I watched it religiously every weekend. And um, I loved it. You know, I loved everything about wrestling. Um, I couldn't get enough of it. And then when WrestleMania 1 came around, that's what really kind of cemented the uh, idea of me becoming a professional wrestler. So, <laughs> Right. So you see WrestleMania 1 and that's like, yeah, you're already a fan, but now you're hooked. Now you know that this is what you want to do. Uh, it seems to be the same way for a lot of people that were in the business. Uh, there was one moment that just made them think, okay, this is what I'll be doing. And I, I guess uh, you you ended up finding a way to, uh, you know, get into the business. You train, is it... Is it true you were trained by a guy by the name of Bobby Wales? Correct. The Jamaican jammer Bobby Wales. Matter of fact, he wrestled. Sometimes he would wrestle for championship wrestling from Florida in a tag team uh, called the Caribbean Connection, along with a guy named Tyree Pride, the Haitian sensation. So they would wrestle as tag teams. But he had a ring very close to my house. He had a ring in a warehouse. And he was training guys. And uh, he was very good. Um... You know, I think I wrestled in my first match after probably six months of training. Um, we also he also trained um, Norman Smiley quite oh, a really? bit. Wow! In, in in Norman's early days, I think Norman was going to a few places, but uh, he would come to our school quite often to wrestle with us as well. Awesome, that's cool. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, you 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 wrestled for the first time not long afterward. February 1990, I believe, is the is the time period we're talking here. How did your first match go? It was interesting. Um, Tyree Pride got me booked. I was, gosh, how old was I? Um, uh, 17, 18, 19, somewhere around there. I was in my teens. But it was AWA after Vern Gagne had sold it to, to the Savoldi. So it was ICWAWA. And they still had a bunch of the AWA wrestlers from, you know, the Minnesota area, you know, like Nick Buckwinkle and 
and uh, Boris Zukov and Larry Zabisco. A lot of these guys were still there. And they came down to Florida and did a little loop along with some TV tapings for for the Savoldis. And um, I got to wrestle on that card. I wrestled a guy named Johnny, Johnny Blaze, who was a local guy that Tyree brought. And they put me over. And I think I wrestled as Mean Mike Casey. That was my first wrestling name. All right, that's cool. Uh, and uh, soon after this, from my research, you do actually portray a character known as, is it just simply Garbage Man? Is that correct? Well, when I became the Garbage Man, I had a really, I was in college already and I at the University of Miami, and I had a, a fraternity brother give me a really cool name that they had thought up called Rocco Gibraltar. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I tried to think of a gimmick to go with it, and I came up with the Garbage Man finally, and uh, it seemed to work really good, the Garbage Man Rocco Gibraltar. So I started wrestling as the Garbage Man Rocco Gibraltar for a while, yeah, while I was still finishing up college. Right. So uh, how is it that you were first, I guess, discovered, or uh, when does the first time of the World Wrestling Federation come into contact with you and show some interest? Well, I had just graduated from college and I had made a bunch of promo packages uh, of my wrestling work with, um, uh, I cut a promo, I had a highlight reel and a full match on tape um, and a resume and pictures. And I, I made a bunch of them, like 30 of them. I was going to drive around the country and try to get hired somewhere. And before I ended up leaving, uh they had a convention in my town called, it was at the Miami Beach Convention Center that year. It was called the NatP Convention. And that's a, a convention of TV executives basically buying and selling time on their networks and selling shows. And it turned out that uh, Hulk Hogan was there. They were talking about him. He was just switching over to WCW. And they were talking about the steroid scandal in the newspaper, but then they also mentioned that Vince McMahon was there and that he had no comment. And I realized Vince McMahon was in my city. <laughs> so by the next morning, I had a suit and one of my promo packs, and I had a friend that worked for a local TV station give me his credentials because he was a TV <laughs> executive. And I walked right in the front door and right up to Vince McMahon and shook his hand and told him I wanted to work for him. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. That's uh, that's really being proactive about uh, <laughs> trying to get hired by one of the big companies. So I guess Vince was impressed with that. And uh, soon after, you you work your first dark matches for the company on the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd of February, 94, in Poughkeepsie, New York, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and uh, Lockshield Drake, New York, against uh, Reno Riggins. Um, how did that go? Uh, it was great. You know, Reno, I wrestled all my, my – I had two nights of tryout matches with uh, Reno, and he made me look like a million bucks, man. Such a great guy to work with. I still talk to him to this day uh, through social media, but a real great guy, man. And, and he did me huge favors and made me look great. And um, I, I always I, – every time I talk to him, I tell him I appreciate it because he was – responsible for getting me my job there um but it was it was easy it was easy you know it was it was there was more going on uh, there was more tests going on in the back locker room than there was in the ring you know there was one where 
somebody had told me before I went, they said, watch out for this trick they try to play on you. I go, what do you mean? They said, the first night, you'll have a tryout match, and they'll put you up first thing. And then the second night, they'll tell you, you're going to be up first thing, be ready to go. And you'll be standing at the curtain. You'll be standing up there ready to go, and you'll keep getting delayed, and they will put you off for hours, and they'll check your attitude. Right. And that's exactly what they did. So really? I was ready for it. And I just kept a good attitude. I didn't say a word. I kept a smile on my face. and They didn't uh, trick me with that one. <laughs> they still do that to this day, I've heard. <laughs> really? Yeah, I hear like yeah, they'll they, check uh, your attitude quick. I hear like sometimes they'll purposely be like, okay, you got 10 minutes. And then once you get out there, the referee will be like, okay, you got four minutes. And things like that. So it's funny that the games that they play to test someone's attitude. <laughs> I mean, you got to be able to go on. You got to be able to work on your feet and change immediately you know especially with the sake of live tv and um either you can do it or you can't you know you're either gonna sink or swim and they're gonna check and find out before they hire you <laughs> that's it now i thought it was important to bring up reno riggins's name because uh, uh i like to bring up the names of these guys that <clears throat> help uh put people over and, and uh get them ready because I think these enhancement guys from back in the day, they are unsung heroes in the wrestling business. And um, I'm going to list off some of them later on uh, along your way and your journey in the WWF. Uh, but I just thought it was important to mention that. Um, after this, you work uh, the one and only Bastion Booger on some house shows, Mike Bell for a taping of WWF Superstars, and a couple of matches with Adam Bomb. But of course, 23rd of May, 94, you debut on Raw against the one and only Barry Horowitz, who we've had on the show in Struthers, Ohio. How did you feel being on live TV all these years? You've been a fan, now you're in the business, now you're on Monday night. It was pretty intense. Uh, you know, if you let it get to you, it can uh, mess you up if you get too nervous. But uh, I don't know, there's something about when you're about to go out the curtain, everything changes. Either you, you know, like I said, either you got it or you don't. And when you walk... When you walk out the curtain and the lights on those cameras turn on, either you can turn it on or you can't. And, uh, you know, I was able to just drop all the any, – any nervousness I had, I, I didn't think much about where I was. I just went out like I was wrestling a, a you know, a little bingo hall in South Florida somewhere and uh, just went out and did what I did. You know, I didn't, I didn't let it kind of get to me because uh, if you did, it would eat you alive. But Barry was great. I love Barry to death, man. I still talk to him too through social media and I see him at conventions, but I was warned about Barry Horowitz before the match. And uh thing about Barry Horowitz and some of those other guys, and I don't blame them, um, when they're out there with you, if you're green, they'll they'll take a lot of the match and make you look make you look silly. Um, they will get themselves over, even though they're supposed to be putting you over, yeah. you know? And I, and again, I think Barry Horowitz of all people, deservedly so. I mean, he had, he has such a resume. He had a huge resume before I ever wrestled him. I mean, in Florida and the other places he had worked and, but, uh, I didn't let him get away with it. He tried, you know, he tries to take over and I'd stop him because I knew what he was trying to do. Another guy that did that was Mike Sharp. And another one was the Brooklyn Brawler. Those guys, you know, they'd eat you alive if you were inexperienced and you let them. You had to stand up for yourself and not let them just take the whole match. 
<laughs> I understand. That's funny, though. Uh, uh, you make your WWF Wrestling Challenge debut against Jumping Joey Mags. May he rest in peace in Canton, Ohio the next day. Um, but the next question I wanted to ask was, who did you click with most in the locker room when you first joined the company? Well, when I first joined the company, I mean, I, I kind of went around and rode with different people. First, I rode with Doink and Dink and Luna. Oh, Boy, there was a car, rental car full of people. Woo. Yeah. But uh, that did not last long. Um, you know, there was some issues there, and I ended up moving along. And uh, I rode with Adam Baum and, and Bob Holly some. Um, but they were just, seemed to me, they were just, like, really bitter at the time. And I don't know, it was just really kind of negative feeling when I rode with them. But, and again, it was understandably so. It was one of those situations where they were just, you know, using them, they could have used them a lot better than they were. And I, and later on, they would do the same thing to me. So uh, later on, I would understand why, but I didn't stay there. I rode with Savio Vega when he was playing quite a bit. Savio is one of the most hilarious human beings on the face of the earth. And uh, we always had fun. And that was still pretty early on when he was playing. Um, we would ride together a lot. And, um, you know, sometimes I would bounce around and ride with other people. And later on, it was pretty much when Steve Austin came in, I rode with him quite a bit, and I rode with Bret Hart quite a bit. Oh, that's cool, man. Awesome. And I love those little little stories, little nuggets there. Uh, I can imagine Luna, Doink and Dink in, in the car would be uh, <laughs> an experience, that's for sure. Uh, you get a good push out of the gate. Uh, uh, you win your first 34 straight matches before losing to Diesel on August 4th, 94 in Richfield, Ohio. Um, do you feel like, you know, they were giving you a whole bunch of wins out of the gate to again test your attitude? Well, I think they do it to build you up and give you some, some value. Yeah. Uh, and then it just depends on you which direction they go after that. If you could get yourself over along with what they're doing, they'll continue on the upward thing. But then, you know, if, you're, if you don't do it necessarily the way they want to or whatever, then they'll start feeding you to some main event heels, which is what they started doing with me. Um, and, you know, and again, that's part of it. Uh, looking back now, I know that's part of it. Um, I don't remember Diesel being the first person I lost to, though. Um, I remember the first person on TV I lost to that was was uh, Bam Bam Bigelow in, right. in Wisconsin, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, I, I only wrestled Diesel once, and it was at a house show, and I want to say it was Los Angeles, and he was the – intercontinental champion at the time and yeah. he had a foot injury so he can only wrestle about five minutes right <laughs> um so uh, moving forward uh you, you you work with jerry lawler uh you do a bit of an angle with him how did you like working with jerry lawler i love working with jerry lawler jerry's very easy to work with he's you know that old school heat that memphis tennessee heat so you know, before I ever even walked out to the ring, the fans were tuned up and ready to go because he would piss them off so much. Um, as far as the angle goes, I wasn't really happy with how it ended up. We didn't even get to do a pay-per-view match out of it. Mm. But I think, you know, there was some... I don't think Pat Patterson necessarily liked me too much. 
and some of the other agents, uh, you know, I was kind of standoffish with people, but not in a stuck up way. I just, some people I didn't know who they were, or I just, you know, at the time I was uncomfortable just running around and saying hello to everybody, I guess, but I didn't even know who Pat was. Um, So I, I think I had issue with him and I used to hear that he would talk shit about my matches when I was out there doing the buildup with Jerry Lawler, I'd be wrestling an enhancement guy and we would do some promo angle with me and Jerry Lawler. And, and, um, you know, I heard Pat Patterson and even Shawn Michaels were talking down about it at times, but you know, that could also be wrestlers just trying to wind me up. That's kind of how it goes too. So you take it with a grain of salt, but I never really got along with, Patterson so I don't think he certainly didn't push for that angle and it ended up you know we got a Monday Night Live Monday Night Raw live out of it with Doink and Dink interfering and no pay-per-view and then they moved on and he wrestled um he wrestled uh Roddy Piper and King of the Ring instead right. of me. really okay yeah gosh yeah I, I interviewed Adam Bomb recently and you know he he would say kind of the same thing kind of things would happen um they would say something was going to happen or it looked like something was going to happen and the next thing it's just not on the cards uh so what would you say um for you i mean this is during a time in the world wrestling federation where it's it's a pretty hectic schedule um what how would you describe you know a typical week for you in the wwf uh, you were working most of the week, you know, you'd work the weekend through however many days and we were probably going two or three weeks straight and then come home for a couple of days, maybe. Um, that was usually kind of how it worked. 10 days on two days off or then we go up to like 20 something days and then two or three days off and back on the road. And, and, you know, a lot of us mid mid card to underneath guys weren't making a lot of money, so it was double rough on us. Um, you know, I mean, there was times I wasn't even making enough to live, pay my bills. You know, that's how bad it was then. Yes, it sounds tough, man. And um, I I'd noticed through my research, you continued after this. Uh, Lawler thing that didn't pan out the way that it probably should have. Uh, you continue to get a lot of squash match victories on TV uh, against uh, some legendary enhancement guys like uh, Barry Hardy, Mike Bell, Iron Mike Sharp. Um, you also do some stuff in Europe. Um, so aside from this Lawler thing, was there any, ever like uh, conversations? Do they ever tell you where they plan to go with your character or what you were going to be doing? Or did you just show up at TV and look at who you were against on the board? Well, um, for a while, we talked about turning me heel, and um, I was pushing for that. I just wanted to be Duke Drosy. I wanted to get rid of the dumpster gimmick and just change my appearance and just be this, just, uh, just this, you know, really strong heel. And um, Vince kept saying yes, but we, but they just never pulled the trigger on it. I mean, I only wrestled once. As one time, I wrestled a TV match against Marty Jannetty, where I turned heel during the match and it went really well. The crowd was with it. And then they just, you know, the agent that day was Bill Watts had come in to work briefly in night, whatever, 95, 96. And uh, he wanted to see me work as a heel. I worked as a heel. It worked well. 
And then he left a week later because he didn't get along with the clique. So oh, that didn't right. work. It's just, you know, it's amazing how periphery situations can, when they change, can change like all the way down the line for people's plans. And it seemed like that put me being a heel on hold for a while. And we came back and we were going to start it again. I was going to, you know, be under Ted DiBiase. Oh, I see. And I re- yeah, I wrestled a match versus Steve Dahl where I beat Steve Dahl. And then I got out of the ring and there was some money in my garbage can. That was just one show we did that. I mean, that was one time we did that and then we went away from it and they stopped it again. They didn't do it anymore. I was like, wow. I don't understand why. But That's frustrating, man. Because for me, like uh, when, when you're doing something and you want to be creative with it, you want to be doing things that have you can sink your teeth into and, and have fun with, you know, because... Man, being being a wrestler for a lot of people like me or like just when you're a kid, it sounds like, wow, this looks like it'll be so much fun to be able to portray a character and do all these awesome things. Yet, again, another opportunity comes to do something and it's for no reason taken away. So that's disappointing to hear. Um, but, you know, and I've, I've said this before too, and this is true. Then I was clueless. I didn't know a lot of things. Looking back, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty. I could have just kept walking out there and wrestling as a damn heel if I wanted to, you know, mm. especially on live TV. I mean, what the hell were they going to do? Um, I could have made it. I could have got myself over. There's ways to get yourself over and do what you want to do, especially since they had said it already a couple times they were going to turn me heel. I had every right to do it. I wouldn't even have gotten in trouble. So I should have done different things a different way myself. You know, you can't sit back and wait on them to to do everything for you because they're not going to you've got to take charge and get yourself over in so many ways uh to make it work and that's why you see you saw guys like stone cold and the rock yeah when they forced change and they came out of what the original shitty gimmick they had yeah and they started pushing it you saw what happened so yeah that's the that's the way it worked yeah, absolutely. They they maximized their minutes and it forced the forced the company's hand to do what you know. Because if you get it. over, Vince ain't gonna stop it. Exactly. And uh, it is it is funny how a lot of uh, people when they came into the company always were stuck with some sort of shitty gimmick before they could finally get themselves out of it. Um, but it's because you know they had all these shitty gimmicks on a damn on on shelves sitting somewhere just waiting for people to come in and every time somebody new came in, they take like three of them and go, which one do we want to, which one of these shitty gimmicks do we want to try and put on this person? And, um, yeah. you know, cause they were so stuck on their stupid ideas for so long. <laughs> That's why it was stuck that way. Now, of course I brought my own shitty gimmick, so it didn't really matter, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I had a ready-made gimmick I brought in with me. So I was surprised he hadn't thought of it actually. Yeah, it seemed like a lot of guys back then, uh, the, the characters had a secondary job to their wrestling, which was, uh, it's amusing looking back. Uh, but I know uh, when I interviewed Adam Bomb, he had joined the company way before Steve Austin did, and they had pitched to him to either be Adam Bomb or the ringmaster. So that's how long the ringmaster was sitting on the shelf for, for those playing at home. That's quite some time. Yeah, I think they might have pitched me the ringmaster too. They never called it that though, but... When they were talking about turning me heel, 
they said I was going to be with Ted DiBiase and I was going to be like his protege, uh, like a new and a new and improved million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. So uh, as I look back, I went, hmm, that might have been that angry. That might have been that gimmick. So, uh, and I wasn't, I was by far, farthest thing from a damn technical wrestler. I'll tell you right now. I don't think Adam Bomb is either. I think he would admit it. You know, I was not a technical wrestler. I used to just freaking throw people all over the place, you know, and slam them and clothesline them and all that. So I don't think I would have been a good protege to Ted DiBiase, one of the best wrestlers in the history of the game. Yeah, it is funny just hearing that now. It's like they just keep trying to get this thing on somebody. <laughs> they want to stick it on somebody. That's the way it was. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so uh, it, as I was doing my research, and you know, it, it kind of feels like they weren't sure what to do with you for a lot of 1995. You spend from June to September doing only house shows except one lone TV taping for superstars in June against Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Um, and I know they're building, I guess they're going to end up building toward uh, some sort of thing between uh, yourself and him. But um, do you remember that stretch of time where you weren't being put on television? Yeah, they were killing me. Um, you know, I didn't, I really didn't wrestle much at all. I wasn't on many house shows either. I mean, I, there was a lot of house shows I wasn't on. And uh, when I was on them, they were shitty towns with no money. Mm. Um but the reason I wrestled Triple H is because my contract came up. It was up for renewal, and I was ready to quit. Um, and I refused to work on TV with Steve Austin when he first came in. We still laugh about that, by the way. But his I think it was his first match as the ringmaster. And um, out of the blue, they said, Drossy, go get your stuff. We want you to work with him. And uh, at that point, I was just, like, tired of it and – Freaking uh, Bret Hart told me, he said, I refuse to do it. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, man, Bret said that. I should take his advice. Freaking stupid. But I took his, his advice, and it worked, again, because my contract was up. That's the only reason it worked. And not that I was some superstar, but they didn't want to lose what the little bit they had invested in me. So plus I think Vince knew that I could take the garbage man gimmick with me, just not the name. Anyway... Uh, they didn't make me do the job for Steve. I explained to Steve why, and we became great friends after and since. Um, and then that's when we they pitched me with the Triple H feud. That's that was their cure for my unhappiness was to work with Triple H on a couple matches and the SummerSlam thing. And since I wanted to turn heel, they, you know, Jim Ross came up with the idea of him cutting my hair as part of the angle, which I had agreed to do. I said, I agree to do it as long as you turn me heel and I get some kind of revenge on him somewhere. But then none of that happens. He cut my hair. We did the match. He, he hit me in the face with the lid and pinned me. And then I went back to losing any to any new heel that walked through the front door. <laughs> That's so frustrating. So the cure for the whole thing is to actually do something with you. And then not follow through with it again. That's uh, it seems quite typical of the company. I must admit. Um, yeah, they they just they promised me something just to, so I would roll over, and then they had me for another year to beat the shit out of me, like they did. So it was what it was, you know. I mean, I look back now, though. There was a lot of things I could have done differently, and um, you know. So I'm I, I can't put it all on them. I mean, there. Look, 
they do treat people shitty in a lot of instances. Vince, you know, the way Vince, Vince will make promises and not keep them, but he's a promoter. <laughs> That's what promoters do a lot of times. And um, <laughs> if you can't handle that, then you won't, shouldn't be in the wrestling business. You know, you've got to be able to take bad news and, and spin it and turn it into a good for yourself somehow in the wrestling business, or you're not going to last. And I just didn't know how to do that then. I, I was just, I just got angry and went and sulked in a corner somewhere. And that did nothing for me. It was not productive at all. And then they ended up being tired of me pissing and moaning all the time. And they got rid of me. <laughs> I understand. Um, so despite the unhappiness that you're feeling with uh, not being utilized to your full potential, uh, you do have that pay-per-view debut against Hunter at the Louisville Gardens for In Your House 6, Rage in the Cage. It, you, you've been there a couple of years now, but, uh, you know, is there still deep within you, are you still thrilled about the opportunity to finally perform on pay-per-view? I was happy to finally have a singles match on pay-per-view. Up until that point, I'd only been on two others, and that they, they were they were both Royal Rumbles. Ah, uh, of course, yeah. Yeah, so I mean that was that, that seemed like the only thing they were going to put me on, and uh, so I finally got on a pay per view in your house and you know a singles match somewhere in the middle of the card I guess and and um, yeah I mean I was happy I just wasn't happy with the finish um, about it I thought we could have done it differently because it really didn't make sense to me you know me and Triple H had wrestled a match before that called the free for all. Yeah, and whoever won got to be number thirty in the rumble, and whoever lost had to be number one, which is a disadvantage. Yeah. Well, he hit me with brass knuckles and knocked me out and pinned me, and it looked like he beat me. But Gorilla Monsoon, the acting uh, president, came out and overturned it and disqualified him. So that was Hunter's first loss in the WWF was a DQ to me, and. The problem I had is when we got to the pay-per-view and did the match, the finish was he hits me in the face with my own lid. And the ref didn't see it, of course. But where was Gorilla Monsoon on that one? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> see, that's the kind of shit they would do that makes no sense. Where were you on that one, Gorilla? <laughs> but I'll tell, you what the, I'll tell you what the conversation with him went like. I told Vince, he goes, listen. It's not like we're pushing Mike Drosy to the WWF championship in, in six to eight months. Now that hurt my feelings. <laughs> I knew he, I knew I wasn't being pushed to be the champion, but to hear Vince McMahon say it to you, it's it's painful. And then he said these infamous words. He said, Do what you always do. Show up with a smile on your face and do your job. And I was there was nothing I could say. I had no bargaining position. It was I fact? I mean, I could quit, which I mean, I ended up basically leaving anyway. It was well, Briscoe came up and told me to go home after I had bitched so much, but I was already two steps out the door anyway. But um, you know, I mean, I figured I, I, I was going to do business. I wasn't going to walk out on a match, and so uh, you know, a pay per view match that they had been building up. So I went. I mean, I did it. And um, then after that, it just got worse and worse. And I was more pissed off. And I was doing a lot of drugs because I'd hurt my back. And, oh, um, okay. Yeah, and I was just irrational. And I was talking to Vince and saying I wasn't, you know, it was like, if you're not going to use me better than this, send me home. 
that's probably not the smartest thing to say to Vince McMahon. So, you know, I was catching a lot of heat that way. And then they eventually just sent me home. I think he, he sent Briscoe in, up to me in the locker room, which to this day, I don't even know if Vince really sent it because Vince never sent it to me. But Briscoe said, you can go, Vince said, you can go ahead on home. <laughs> so I just went home. Right. I went home and uh, spiraled out of control for a while. I understand. And um, I'll get to that in a bit. I just wanted to... Uh, to kind of list off some things that happened along the way uh, before you uh, ended up leaving the company. Uh, uh, so after the feud with Triple H kind of fizzles out, you worked with Steve Austin um, in uh, 96 on some house shows on the 13th to the 16th uh, of June. Uh, and then, of course, you wrestled Mankind on the 24th of June uh, in your last appearance on Monday Night Raw. Um, I read uh, somewhere, and I think this is must be incorrect because I think you know you left for other reasons. But I read somewhere that you you felt burned out on the schedule. Is that correct? Yeah, that's not true. No, I mean we were all burned out on the schedule, but we we just you know did what we had to do. I was I was just pissed off the way they were using me. You know, right? And my ego, my little ego, got the best of me, and. Uh, I took my ball and went home, but in this case, nobody cared like they did when Austin did it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the last thing I was going to mention before I move on from this uh, time period, your final match was against Al Snow, a.k.a. Leaf Cassidy, on the 7th of July, uh, 1996, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and after that, you worked some shows in Maryland, Florida, and New York to round out 1996. But after that, you go to Germany to wrestle uh, for Catch Wrestling. I uh, interviewed PN News, uh, aka Cannonball Grizzly, a little while ago about his experience sure. there. Also, Joe E. Legend and a few other guys. Uh, uh, Ice Train as well. He also said he loved his experience there. All I've heard is sterling things about catch wrestling, sterling things about Germany. It's my favorite country to visit. How did you feel about your experience there? I mean, I enjoyed it. It was uh, probably the it was one of the last couple of years that that company would be going. Otto's company was going to shut down within a couple of years after that, but because uh, business was down, but. Uh, it was a fun experience. I had a blast hanging out with those guys and working with guys like, like Cannibal Grizzly and Christian Eckstein and, uh, Fit Finley and Robbie Brooksides and, mm. and just all of those guys. Pierre was there that year with me. Uh, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, he came in, in the off season and worked there with us too. So it was interesting. It was different. You know, you, you, lived outside of a wrestling building basically in a camper for 30 to 60 days because you wrestled there 60 days straight every single night and um so you always had to do something different <laughs> you know wwf everybody had their little match that they would do and they would just keep doing it you know if the if the, if the next day's show was far enough away 200 miles or more they would do the same thing over and right. over and over. You couldn't do that in Germany, man. You had to come up with new stuff every day because uh, you were wrestling in front of the same people for 30 to 60 days straight. Oh, that's great. That's a good learning experience, I would say. And uh, another thing in my research that I found fascinating, you wrestled in Kenya, December 20th, 1997. I believe you worked with Jim Neidhart. Uh, 
uh, I might be wrong. Uh, I think I saw the name Powerhouse Nightheart, so I assumed it was him. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a guy okay. that claimed to be related to Jim Nightheart, who had a oh. long beard. Um, there was a lot of lookalikes uh, there that that did different gimmicks, but uh, uh, that Powerhouse Nightheart guy—he was cool, though. I mean, he was from Canada. He said he really was related to Nightheart, but I don't think he was. I just think Nightheart gave him his blessing to do it. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he kind of acted and, and worked kind of like Nightheart. Um, that Kenya thing was in between Germany towns. I remember we had to end early in like in uh, Hanover, Germany. We we ended that show maybe like a week early or something. And one of the wrestlers had a opportunity. A guy named Franz Schumann. He set up the week-long tour in Mombasa, Kenya. Yeah. And since I was there and I wasn't planning on flying home between the Germany tours, uh, he brought me down with him and just got a little extra payday and went and spent a week in Mombasa, Kenya. So, yeah, we wrestled down there, though. It was interesting. Yeah, how did you find Kenya? I mean, this to me, I just was so fascinated that it was such a different country for somebody wrestling. It was hot. It was very <laughs> hot. I was glad the air conditioner worked in the hotel room. But no, I mean, I didn't. I didn't go out a whole lot and do much. Um, and you know, interestingly enough, probably within a year after that, they bombed the uh, the American embassies there in in Kenya. Um, Al Qaeda did. They said so. It wasn't too long after that. So thankfully, we wouldn't get, didn't get caught up in any of that. Yeah, thankfully. Um, so 1998, I found this fascinating too. March 2nd, you do a dark match with uh, Pierre Ulay and uh, Ulette, uh, and uh, the 3rd of March against Paul Diamond uh, for some dark matches. What was uh, this all about? Was with the company taking another look at you or we, what happened there? Yeah, what, the, what had happened was... Um, I wanted to come back to the business and I had spoken to Bruce Pritchard and I was also talking to WCW and somewhere around the same time I did a dark match at WCW with a guy, but you know, nobody knew my name. So it's, it's on YouTube as just some guy wrestling in a dark match on nitro or something. But, um, WWF made me come in and try out again, which I thought was interesting. They made Pierre try out again. They made Paul wow. Diamond try out again. Oh, I see. Uh, and I don't think they hired any of us back. But I don't know. I just, it was interesting. You know, when you really do a tryout match, they put you with an enhancement guy. And in this case, they just kind of threw us in there with other guys trying to get a job. Yeah, that's strange. So nobody's going to be able to really kind of show their best stuff and um that's just kind of how it worked it was just guys in there doing matches that and trying to get your stuff in and it didn't work out they never called me because they found out about wcw i think and and vice versa so uh i never got any calls because i believe they were very vindictive on both sides right austin austin told me to choose one Bret Hart told me to do both. I should have chosen one. 
Mm. I should have took. The, I should have just went and did WWE's. But you know, again, live and you learn. Yep, of course. Um, and speaking of getting a phone call, there's a phone call that you get in 2001 to be a part of the Gimmick Battle Royal WrestleMania 17. Uh, I mean, the. Uh, I mean, I know the, the the run with WWF hasn't gone well as far as you getting used to your full potential, but it must be pretty fun at least. WrestleMania 17 in front of. 60 odd thousand people to perform in that battle royal um tell me a little bit about you know getting the call for that and and the experience of doing that first of all they didn't call me i called them i called oh, right. Richard because yeah because um i was working down in florida with the uh, company i had worked for before that the, the independent down there uh it was sunshine wrestling federation they had just recently bought the name florida championship wrestling before later later on vince would take over the name but it was FCW. Anyway, I was kind of their, their trainer, and uh, I owned the ring. But uh, a guy named Bobby Rogers told me, the same guy that told me that they would test your attitude at a tryout, he right. told me they were having the gimmick battle royal that I needed to call Bruce. Really? So I called Bruce, and uh, he got me set up and put on it. Um, but I'll tell you, at that time, man, I was on drugs, a lot of drugs. So I was really in no shape to really wrestle or it was a great experience, but I really didn't go out of my way to say hi to a lot of people. Cause I was kind of embarrassed at the state I was in. Um, I saw some of my friends and I was glad, but um, otherwise I was just happy to get in and out and get the paycheck really. But it was amazing walking out in front of 65,000 people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to, I guess, move on to talking to you about life after wrestling because it doesn't seem you you work too much after this. Maybe you do. Uh, my research just said that there was a pretty big gap in time before you, you do anything with wrestling again. But uh, tell me a little bit about life after wrestling. And you've mentioned that the, the drug stuff a few times here. Um, it's always good to, to hear those success stories of people having those issues and coming out um, on, on the other side. So please, if, uh, if, if you're able to, um, the floor is yours to tell me about that. Yeah, you know, after wrestling, I just went into a, 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 a downward spiral of drugs and alcohol and everything. You know, I was already using a lot of drugs while I was still working there, pills and stuff like that. And uh, when I left, it got worse because, you know, I didn't have a wife or kid, any kids at home. So when I would get home from the road, I would keep partying. And now I was staying at home and there was no matches to get ready for on the road. So I just went completely out of control. Uh, and that lasted until I want to say the end of 2002 when everything really fell apart and I couldn't get any, I didn't have any more money. I couldn't get drugs. I couldn't work anywhere. I was unemployable. And my family flew me up to go to rehab in Tennessee because they had all moved up to Tennessee. <clears throat> I came up, I did rehab and all that and got clean and decided to get my life back in order from 2003 till about 2009, 2010. I had went back to school, got a master's degree and became a school teacher for several years. Um, then I had a foot injury. 
my left foot and it kind of fell apart like the bones were all messed up and I started taking pills again and I relapsed well this time it moved really fast and I got to the point where I became an IV drug user I was shooting up any pills that I could melt in a spoon that's how far along it had gotten and I was holding on for dear life to this teaching job and uh, I, I relapsed in about 2009, 2010, and it was just this went on until about 2013. In 2013, you know, I was running around out there with people I shouldn't have, and doing deals to get pills that I wanted, and I got busted. I got busted. I got uh, ended up with two felony charges on my record, two convictions. Uh, um, delivery of Schedule 2 and Schedule 3 narcotics. Um, basically, I took the drugs that my doctor prescribed me that weren't strong enough, and I would sell them to get money to buy stronger drugs that I could shoot up. And in the process of doing so, I got set up by somebody, one of my drug dealers, who actually got busted and didn't want to do any time. He set a bunch of us up. So that was the end. And, um, you know, I lost everything. Again, uh, the teaching career was gone. Coaching careers gone. Wrestling was way gone. And um, I knew something had to change. So uh, I did it differently that time. Um, as part of my plea deal, I took a program called the Drug Court. It's kind of like probation and drug treatment at the same time. It's really strict. Um, they watch every move you make, you know, if you're able to work, you, they require you to get a job and pay taxes and, and, and you know, and, and just be a productive member of society. And they also offer drug treatment. So I went through that program and again, I was ready. I was done. I was ready to change. So once I got physically clean, I was willing to do whatever it took. And uh, I did well. I passed uh, the, I graduated from that program in 2015 and they hired me right away. They wanted me to work, uh, which is where I work now. And uh, I'm a, case, a peer case manager. And I also teach recovery classes four days a week. And um, that's what I do now. I try to help people that are struggling with drug problems. Uh, and it's a major part of my life. I even have a podcast about it called Road to Recovery. Right. Thank you so much for sharing that. I didn't realize the the, the places that you've been uh, since all of this happened. And um, I uh, thank you for sharing. And 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 for me, I just want to say I'm really proud of you. I'm so proud of you that you've 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 come out the other side and you're helping people now. That is just amazing. That's amazing. Um, well. I appreciate that. Thank you. You know, they say there's we're going to one of three places when we're in active addiction. Uh, we're going to jails, institution, or death. <laughs> and by institutions, that means rehabs. But jail, rehab, or death, take your choice. Well, I went to jail, and I went to rehab. I don't want to experience the third one, so I knew I had to make a change. And, and that's what I did, you know. And, and once I did, my life changed completely. I wasn't living in chaos anymore. And uh, now I just try to teach others how to get to that place. Absolutely. That's awesome, man. And uh, another thing in my research that I found particularly interesting was 2019, a wrestling company known as Chikara brings you in for a match called the Infinite Gauntlet, where you make a surprise. Chikara always does. It's always bring like guys back from, you know, 
back in the day for a surprise appearance for something like that. Please tell me a little bit about that experience. You know, it came out of the blue. Uh, Quackenbush, right? Mike yes. Quackenbush, is that the promoter? Yeah. Let me tell you something about Mike Quackenbush. I never met him before this. And um, he had one of his office guys call me to book me for it. Uh, and, and they brought me in. And from the moment I walked in the door, watching Mike Quackenbush run his company was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. I mean, it was a smaller level company compared, obviously, to like a WWE. But he was on top of everything. One of the most, I still say it to this day, one of the most organized, well-run companies from top to bottom I've ever seen. And uh, I really enjoyed doing that show. You know, it's interesting because I really had not been wrestling because <clears throat> that left foot injury I told you about earlier um, ended up, I had two surgeries. I was on a lot of drugs and not doing what I was supposed to. And then I got a staph infection. So I had to have my left foot amputated. Oh, so I've got a prosthetic foot. I got a prosthetic foot. So I really didn't think I'd be wrestling anymore. And, um, you know, a couple of promoters kind of got me back in the ring and doing stuff. And he just, he had me come out and smash somebody over the head. And then I did a couple of little moves in the ring and then somebody submitted me and I got the hell out of there and he got me right back to the airport and on the plane, same day back home. So very organized. I loved the way he ran that show and all of his wrestlers were great guys and girls. And it was just, it was a pleasure to work there. No, I'm happy to hear that, bro. That's really cool. And I can mark it off the bucket list. <laughs> Absolutely. Chikara. Yes. <laughs> That's fantastic, mate. Well, um, I wanted at this stage to give you the opportunity to, to plug anything. You've, you've mentioned your uh, podcast. What else is going on in the life of Duke the Dumpster? A large part of what I'm doing, you know, in recovery is the podcast. It's called The Road to Recovery with Duke the Dumpster and Avi Klein. And it's on Facebook Fridays at 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. Now, Facebook, it's on Facebook Live on my Facebook page, Mike Drosy. It's on Avi Klein's Facebook page. It's also on all of our other podcasters' Facebook pages. And when I say other podcasters, on our team, we've also got Ken Patera, Paul Roma, Del Wilkes, the Patriot, Ray Lloyd, Glacier, and Bill DeMott, Hugh Morris um, as part of our team. And Mark Henry is going to be starting in the next week or two with us. So we got a nice team of people with different podcasts going on all week long, every night, live. And it's culminated every Saturday night with a show called The Green Room. And they're all live broadcast through Facebook right now. And it's been very entertaining. But my little corner of this of this network is the road to recovery where we talk to people and have conversations every week with, with folks that have been through tough times and found a way out of it, uh, whether it be drugs and alcohol or substance abuse or other situations in life, you know, abusive relationships or came out of child abuse when they were kids or just had tough issues in their lives and found redemption. That's a big part of my podcast. Plus, we act stupid and goofy by the end of it and play games and have a good time. So it's very, very entertaining. And it's called The Road to Recovery with Duke the Dumpster Drosy on Facebook, 
Mike Drosy's Facebook page, all of our other podcasters' Facebook pages, as well as 39 other pages that broadcast all of our shows for us. So we're getting about a million live views per night per show, which is really awesome. That's amazing. And everyone out there watching this on YouTube, right there in the description below this video, you'll be able to find everything, everything that Mr. Drosy has just mentioned. That sounds awesome. I can't wait to check some of that out. Um, but Mike, at this time, it's time for the segment five second frenzy, five second frenzy. You get five seconds to answer each question. Even if you break the five seconds, it's okay. You won't get in trouble. Uh, here we go. Duke, the dumpster Drosy, Mike Drosy. First question. Who was your favorite wrestler? My favorite wrestler growing up, I idolized the road warriors because that's what I wanted to be, and Ric Flair, because in the 80s, there was nobody better than Ric Flair. <laughs> Absolutely. Who was your favorite opponent over the years? I had a lot of favorite opponents. Um, again, I used to love wrestling with Savio a lot because we always laughed and had a good time. I loved the chances I had to wrestle with Steve Austin. Um, and, of course, Triple H, that whole feud, we wrestled a lot. And he was always very professional and willing to do whatever. So those are a few of the names that I really loved working with. Excellent. Uh, you look back in your career, you got to pick one match. What's one match where you felt to yourself, wow, that, that felt good. That, that's, that's probably going to go down as my favorite. I never, well, sometimes I say it's my favorite, but man, I, it's the strangest thing. I had a house show match and he knows I, I say this, but the hog farmer in, in, uh, the Philippines, I think it was, and, or maybe, yeah, I think it was the Philippines. It was a house show and it was just one of those matches, man. It was magical the way everything came together for both of us and the crowd was into it. And it was just, it was perfect. And I wish I could have had a match like that every single time I ever wrestled. And I loved working with Henry Godwin, Mark Canterbury. Awesome. I'm hopeful to get him on the show very soon. So I'll ask him about that when I, have the opportunity he probably won't even remember it but i remembered it i put him over i i after that i begged vince to let me do a, an angle a feud with him but he wouldn't let me damn uh getting away from wrestling now finally here in five second frenzy mike what's your favorite book oh gosh my favorite book man you know what i haven't read it in a long time but <clears throat> a John Sanford book called Rules of Prey. John Sanford has this series of books uh, about serial killers, and um, it's just really interesting. And it's all about this investigator named Davenport that chases down different types of serial killers. But uh, the first one I read of his series was one right in the middle, I think, called Rule, or it was called Rules of Prey. And all of his books are just really cool. John Sanford, he's the author. Excellent. Uh, what's your favorite TV show? Man, I really don't watch TV much. I've got the internet stuff, so I got uh, like the Netflix and the Amazon. But right now I'm working my way through The Boys about the superhero company. Nice. That's it. That's, what, that's pretty much all I'm watching. Or otherwise some movies here and there. But Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite film? You know, I'd have to go back to some of the old ones that I really used to love. You know, The Godfather, um, The Deer Hunter, Pulp Fiction was always a favorite of mine. So, yeah, those are a few 
that very I would put nice. up there. Very nice. Uh, favorite musical artist? You know what, man? For Alice in Chains. Oh, like, right. Back with, with Lane Staley, though. Back yeah. you know, the old stuff. Yeah. I used to really like the Chili Peppers. Then they kind of just went, you know, too commercial. But, um, you know, imagine if, if Lane Staley was healthy and lived and the stuff they would have put out. It was just amazing. Absolutely. So, yeah, it was Alice in Chains. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Uh, favorite food? Pizza, without nice. a doubt. We get that I on the way show too much quite of a lot. It. <laughs> <laughs> uh, favorite place to eat on the road? Well, I can tell you most frequent is Waffle House yeah. or Denny's. Yeah. You know, but uh, anytime we can find a good steakhouse, you know, back in those days we were trying to save money, but if you can find a good, like an Outback Steakhouse or something like that, that's always good too. But yeah, yeah those kind of places. You hit three of the most popular answers. Uh, Cracker Barrel is also a popular answer with that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Mike Drozzi's Thirsty. What's your favorite beverage? What's something that you go to to quench your thirst? Uh, I have an addiction to Diet Pepsi. It's <laughs> killing me. It's either Diet Pepsi or it's water. So, yeah, those are the things that I drink. Very nice. Uh, the second last one here, Mike, on Five Second Frenzy. It's the naughtiest one. What's oh, your favorite gosh. female body part? You look at a lady. What's something that Mike Drozzi likes? You know, I was a bouncer in strip clubs for a long time. And I'm going to tell you, there's this right above the butt in the lower back. There's these two dimples in the <laughs> lower back. And I do not know why, but just that curve down the back into the rear end, man, that always got me. So that's my favorite part. <laughs> Even before you said it, I knew that you were going to say the two dimples. I knew it. I don't know why. It just, I knew where you were going. <laughs> And, uh, Mike, the last one, I don't think you've sworn yet on this show, but do you have a favorite curse word? Fuck. Again, the most popular <laughs> answer on the <this> show. <laughs> yeah, easily. <laughs> well, Mike, a.k.a. Duke the Dumpster Drosy, it was so fun having the opportunity to talk to you tonight. Uh, really appreciate it. The, some of the stories you told, like your, your badge, your soul, your – you, you let everyone know exactly what happened in your life. And I just want you to know that I live in the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia, and I was a fan of yours. So I think it's always important to show the reach that somebody has and to let them know that somebody all the way over here appreciated what they did in the wrestling business. And I hope you're very proud of what you've accomplished in life. Well, I certainly am a little more today after hearing you say that. And I really appreciate you saying that. Um, thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. And, and thank you again for being on the show. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, everyone out there, for watching the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California and Fury. We will see you next time. Thank you.